Morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Um, if you are new here, my name is uh, Matt Ortiz. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, we are so grateful that you could join us today. And um, if we haven't met, I would be, uh, it would be a favor to me if you'd introduce yourself to me after the service so I could uh, get to know you. We hope you feel welcome here and like a part of the family. Um, during the month of December, we're, we're spending the whole month in anticipation of uh, Christmas where we celebrate the, the birth of God the Son, God the Son being born into this world that, that God created to save us and to deliver us and to live with us. And, you know, as I was preparing uh, for this series and thinking through it and uh, what we would focus on with each individual week, um, my desire, my hope is that we don't approach Christmas like we do every other year, where we just kind of get in the habit, so much so that we kind of get wrapped up with celebrating Christmas, like the rest of the United States does, regardless of whether or not they believe in Jesus or, or not. The, the busyness of it all, or the stress of it all, and then, and then we forget um, while we're celebrating uh, Christ in the first place. And so, in this first message, we're dealing with some, I think, some, some concepts, a, a doctrine that's difficult to, to grasp, I think. I think if we're all honest, you're going to find out. Uh, we might accept it, but it's difficult to understand. And so since we've heard it before, we just might let it go in one ear and out the other, shrug it off. My desire is that we go, as we go through this, that the Holy Spirit would stir something in your heart that leads to a greater love for God and a greater affection for God and deeper gratitude for God so that your heart gets filled more and more with each passing week with the desire to worship God and celebrate uh, the, the arrival of Jesus, uh, our King, on Christmas morning. And so I want you to be as engaged as you possibly can and maybe listen with new ears and new, new, pray for, for new understanding that this would not just be some theological exercise, but that on a practical level, it'll change your heart, so therefore it changes the way that you live. Um, I'm not interested in being a, a, a church or even a Christian that just goes through the empty motions. I wanna, it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit would move among us. So the first passage that, that uh, we're tackling for the month of December here is John chapter 1, the first 18 verses. There is an amazing book called Knowing God. It was written by this brilliant author named J.I. Packer. And I've read this quote to you before, and it's one of my favorite. And J.I. Packer says this. He says, It is no wonder that thoughtful people find the gospel of Jesus Christ hard to believe for the realities with which it deals past man's understanding. But it is sad 
that so many make faith harder than it need be by finding difficulties in the wrong places. And what are those wrong places? Well, Packer gives us some examples. People ask, you know what, how can the death of Jesus have anything to do with my life here and now for all of the bad stuff that I've ever done? Or, or how can we believe that Jesus actually really physically raised from the dead? And am I really supposed to believe that Jesus was, was born from a, a, a virgin, that he walked on water, that, that he fed the 5,000, that, that he was raised from the dead? He says that those are the wrong places to find the difficulties. And he goes on to say the real difficulty does not lie here at all. Actually, it, it lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement or in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. He goes on to say, it is here in the thing that happened at that first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. God became man. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty was born as a baby. And the more you think about it, he says, the more staggering it gets. This is the real stumbling block in Christianity. So when we read those first few words out of John chapter 1, we read, the Word became flesh. It raises all kinds of questions, right? Well, we can't, you know, address all of them, but we're going to address three of them this morning. And the first question is this, who is the word? John, John opens this with this crazy sentence. He says this, I think we have it, there it is, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, he was in the beginning with God. God. Okay, now, there's this age-old question that people have been asking for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years, and that question is, what is the meaning of life, right? Throughout history and around the world, people have been pursuing the answer to the meaning of life in all kinds of creative ways, and they do it, for, you know, through religion or through philosophy or through science, the latest comes from Stephen Hawking and his crew, what is known as the Theory of Everything, abbreviated T-O-E, toe. And toe is a formula that's supposed to eventually explain everything, like how the universe was created, how the universe was maintained, like how light came to exist, how life came to exist. And John is telling us right here, and he's opening words, that the theory of everything that you're looking for, the, the meaning of life that explains everything, it is not a formula. It is a person. The source of life and light, the theory of everything is the word. And I'll introduce him to you, John says. So who is the word? Well, first we see that the word is eternal. 
Remember John, how he started by saying, in the beginning? Does that sound familiar at all? You've heard that before, right? The opening few words of the Bible in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is saying that that before the beginning, before God created, nothing existed except for God. And then God created everything out of nothing. So John writes, in the beginning was the Word. In eternity, before anything was created, the Word already was. The Word had no beginning. Therefore, that means the Word always existed. The Word is eternal. Now now stick with me here, all right? Because secondly, we see that the Word is creator. Verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. So where did the universe come from? John tells us, through the Word. Through the Word, all things were made. Nothing was made without Him. And that's what Genesis tells us. In Genesis 1, when God was creating eight different times, He says, let there be. And bam, there it was. When you say, let there be light, You still have to put down the remote, get off the couch, walk across the room, and flip on the light switch. Or you get one of your kids to do it, which is why we had kids in the first place, right? (laughs) Or maybe you say, I have one of those fancy Alexa boxes, and I just have to say, Alexa, turn on the lights, (laughs) right? It's different. (laughs) The elders... We're having a meeting with a few people over at uh, the Wings house. They moved into a new house. They've been fixing it up, and they had us all over, and, and we were there for a meeting. But Julia Wing is such an amazing hostess. She met it, made it feel like we showed up to a party. She had all this food, and wonderful music was playing. There were kids running everywhere, and then we finally sat down to have the meeting, and there was all this noise going on. And out of nowhere, Julia says, Alexa, Stop! <laughs> Everything went quiet, including the elders. And we were like. And then Josh Cass says, Alexa, set alarm for 3 a.m. And it did. (laughs) And they forgot. (laughs) And it went off at 3 a.m. Now that's pretty impressive, the day and age we live in, right? That's nothing compared to what we're talking about right here. In Genesis, God speaks the universe into existence. When God says, let there be light, bam, there was light. You know why? Because the word has power in itself. And why does God's word have power in itself? Because God's word is a person. John says all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life. Scientists tell us that the law of biogenesis means that life must come from 
life. So where did life come from in the first place? It came from the word. Everything and everyone who ever lived or ever will live owes their life to the source of all life, the word. This passage goes on to tell us that this word is light. Again, verse 4, in him was life, and the light was the light of men. Now, we're not just talking about physical light here. The word also enlightens us. Light is truth, and all reason to the extent that it is true comes from the word. Most importantly, the word sheds light on our, on our spirituality. Are you feeling dead in your Christian walk like there's nothing stirring in your, in your heart or in your soul? Well, the word sheds light on our spirituality, our spiritual uh, condition, uh, who, the, 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 our relationship with God and the state of our heart and the hope that we have in, in Jesus. The word dispels the darkness of that, that, that sin, the darkness of that, that apathy, the, the darkness that comes along with kind of shrugging our, our shoulders toward our faith. In verse 5, John writes, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, some of you need this doctrine more than you realize. This is not just some intellectual exercise. There's very real down-to-earth implications for your life, for your heart, for your perspective on the world and all of its brokenness. You need to remember, I don't know what it is that you're going through right now, or how overwhelmed you might be, or how depressed you might be, or, or what kind of great loss that you've been going through. Light is stronger than darkness. Darkness cannot, will not prevail against it. I mean, we see in the physical world, a, a little flame can dominate a dark room, a pitch black room. It's just as true, if not more, in the spiritual world. It feels dark, he is light, and you're reminded that darkness cannot overcome that light, that means that God's got you. He's got you. No matter what you're going through, no matter how dark your life or the world seems. And then finally, the word is God. Look at verse 1 again. It says, the word was with God, and then secondly, and the word was God. So first, it says the word was with God, meaning that the word is distinguished from and also at the same time exists in close personal relationship with, with God. And he says the word was God. The word shares the very nature of God. The word is fully God and yet it is distinguished from God. And this right here is pointing to the Trinity, our triune God. That God is one, and yet this one God exists in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Whew, that 
It's heavy stuff. It's difficult to wrap your brain around it. But this is the truth. This is the word. And this word is powerful. You hear all this talk about the Big Bang. Yeah, there was a Big Bang. God spoke the word and bang, the infinite power and pure energy was released and everything was created out of nothing. And then what holds it all together? The author of Hebrews tells us that God the Son is sustaining all things. How? By his powerful word. Man, if that is not crazy enough, watch this. Verse 14. It says this. This word became flesh. That right there is the most mind-bending statement ever of all time. Do you realize that? Maybe you've just heard it so often. That's mind-blowing right there. This right there is a high point of all scripture. It is a high point of all history. It is a high point of all creation. That right there is the Christmas story. It's the very essence of our faith that we share together. God became human. And God enters the world not as a king, not as an emperor, not as, a, not as an impressive five-star general, but as a fetus conceived out of wedlock, born in a barn, next to dirty, smelly farm animals, to a poor Jewish carpenter and his peasant wife. I mean, imagine what the angels were thinking. The angels watch in shock as Mary changes God's diapers, as Mary teaches the almighty God who created the universe how to walk. I mean, that's crazy. How do you wrap your brain around that? Well, that's exactly why Packer says that the gospel confronts us with this supreme mystery. The word became flesh. I don't think any one of us will fully understand this in our life. Um, We may not fully understand it until we meet God. But it's truth, and God calls us to trust him, and we take him for his word even if we don't understand it all. Right? So let's go ahead and pretend that we got it, all right? Now the question is, why? Why did the word become flesh? What was the point of it all? Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the one son, only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This eternal word, this word who is creator, this word who is light, this word who is God became flesh to dwell with us. And you see where he says uh, he dwelt with us? A more direct interpretation gives us this picture that God set up his tent, that God moved into the neighborhood to be with us. 
And it's more than that. The tent being referred to here is the tabernacle, the temple, the dwelling place of God, the place where God met with his people. In the Old Testament, when the tabernacle was set up in the wilderness, the Shekinah glory filled the tent as a visible representation of God. He came to dwell among his people and to let us know that he is there, he is with us, and he is God. But here, what John's telling us now was, was what we learn is that Jesus is the true tabernacle, that Jesus is the true temple, that Jesus is where the glory is fully revealed, that Jesus is where God meets with his people. Why did he do that? First, to make God known so that we can know him. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is called the Word because he reveals God to us. He reveals God to us in in everything that he's created. He reveals God to us in the life that, that he gives us. He reveals God to us in the light of reason that he gives to us. He especially reveals God to us in the flesh, in the life that he lived among us. In John 14, Jesus says to his, his disciples, If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be good enough for us. And then Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Like, you can almost hear the exasperation here. And he says, let me break it down. Let me make it simple for you. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you think that sunk in for them? Do you think that knocked them over? See, the life of Jesus shows us exactly what God is like. If you lived in Jesus' day and you wanted to see what God was like, you'd watch Jesus, right? But what do we do? Here in in, in 2017, if, if we want to see what God is like, we see him through the eyes of those who saw Jesus in the flesh and wrote about it. I think when we don't have a passion for the scriptures, I think it reveals that we don't have a passion to really know God at all. When we read the scriptures, especially gospel, you know what we're seeing? We see the creator and his power as he calms the storm and he walks on water. We see the light of the world as he heals the blind and he casts out the powers of darkness. We see the source of all life as he stands at the tomb of Lazarus who had been dead for four days and commands him to come out. And he does. 
the word became flesh to make God known to us. But also, he became flesh to bless us, to bless God's people. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I love this. Jesus came to us so that we might experience and benefit from and be blessed by his grace. And where do we see the glory of God's grace? We can see it in the pages of his selfless life as he loved people and as he served people and and as he lived for the glory of God day in, day out. And then we see the fullest revelation of God's grace at the cross. The cross is the source of grace upon grace, which is wave after wave after wave after wave of grace to bless you. You know, it's on the cross that the creator was crucified by his creatures that he created. The God of life died. The light was snuffed out by the darkness. The one who was with God in the beginning cried out to the Father, but there was silence. The one who breathed life into each of our lives, the one who sustains every single second of every day, now steps down and he stands face to face with the power of death. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, with all of the confidence and all the authority of God, okay, this time you win. The theologian John Wesley famously wrote, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." The God of the universe who created all and holds it all together, makes himself nothing by becoming a man, and not just a man, but a servant, not just a servant, a servant of all. And then he gives himself up to die on the cross. You know, the the cross was used as a, as a method of execution, um, not just to kill people, but, but designed uh, to torture them slowly to death. By Jesus' day, it had become a science. I mean, every step was calculated to intensify the pain and then to extend the pain and the agony for days. I can't think of a more excruciating way to die. But as excruciating as the pain was, There was so much more than just pain. There was the shame. The book of Hebrews says Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. You know, in that day, crucifixion was reserved for the worst of all criminals, the the people that society considered to be like the scum of the earth, Crucifixion was so shameful, it was illegal for the Romans to crucify their own citizens 
regardless of how bad a crime they committed. Think of the worst crime. It was still illegal for them to crucify their own citizens because it was so shameful. And then God chose to endure that at the hands of people that he created. So, again, it it is my prayer that these things, though you may have heard them before, my prayer is that all of us, we don't just become too familiar with it in such a way that we get apathetic or blasé. We've heard it before. Tell me something I don't know. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would stir within all of us a greater uh, affection for God and, and just a greater sense of awe, just being blown away by who God is and what he's done for us so that it changes the way that we live and the purpose that we have in life. And the question is, how will we respond? And the passage shows us two different responses. First, some did not receive him. That's one response. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. So John is telling us that that from the beginning, you know, God's been uh, planning a life for us. And he's been creating our home. The the earth and the universe uh, that that he created clearly reveals uh, who God is. But the very people who he brings into the world, the very people he gives life to, the very people that he loves, turn to God and say, who are you? We don't know you. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. I'm telling you, at some point, and this, this, it's, this is not just for Christians, but also Christians, there, there are times when, when we just simply ignore the creator of the universe who gave us life and, and had poured grace upon grace upon our hearts and, and to say, there are times where we just ignore that. There are times when we reject, where we turn our back on this gracious, glorious God for these other things that we think we hope will make us happy, things that we have to have for us to be okay. It's not just non-Christians that do this. Christians, functionally, we turn to other things for life. Other things for joy. All of us at some point reject him. And and you know what the heart is behind all that? You know what the issue is there when we do that? It's self-righteousness is what it is. It's self-righteousness. I mean, there are self-righteous people who say they're Christians, but, but really do actually reject Jesus. They don't believe the truth that they are sinners too, maybe intellectually, but not functionally. That's not been internalized that they are desperate for Jesus and his grace too. You know, I, I have, I've talked to people who grew up in, in a Christian home and involved in ministry forever. It wasn't until they were in their late 20s that they realized, oh man, God's grace is for me. Totally revolutionized their relationship with God. We do not appreciate grace until we see how desperate we are for his grace. 
And one of the best things that, that we can do, I think, to, if, if we've started going through the motions, one of the best things I think that we could do is ask God to, that his word would shine a light on our heart and reveal our own sin to us. And when the Holy Spirit does that, it can be um, lovingly devastating. It's a diagnosis. But thank God he just doesn't leave us there and say, get your act together. (laughs) By his glorious grace, he gives us life and he forgives us. And then all of a sudden, our relationship with God becomes on fire again because we see how much he loves us, especially when we look to the cross. You know, maybe uh, you're not a Christian at at all. There are plenty of people who say, I don't need Jesus. You know what? To be honest, you know, some people say, you know, I'm more loving than those judgmental Christians all on my own. But I, I I, I want you to see something. That's more self-righteousness, okay? That's more self-righteousness. It's, it's a looking to yourself for righteousness. And then there are others, by God's grace, by God's grace, some did receive him and still do. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you're a Christian, this should fill you with a sense of relief. For those of you who are not Christians yet, but you're checking it out, you know what, maybe you've come to a place where you realize that self-righteousness doesn't work at all. And maybe you've realized that, that, that you can't save yourselves, or maybe you realize that, that, you, that you can't be good enough, and so, so now you just feel lost and you've become desperate for grace. If that's you, first of all, I want you to know that is God waking you up to see your need for him, right? And, 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 and he is saying to you, just, just trust me. The, the purpose in life that you're looking for, the meaning in life you're, you're looking for, he says, it's found in me, come to me, and I will bless your socks off beyond anything that this world could ever do for you. This is him pursuing you. And so my question for you, if you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus, my question for you, will you receive him? Will you receive him this morning? Will you give your life to him, your heart to him, your soul to him? Will you trust him as your deliverer, the one that took our punishment on the cross so that we never would have to be punished? Will you trust him? Will you follow him? Will you finally start your relationship with him today? Don't put it off any longer. He's been calling you, drawing you to himself your whole life. And today, you're hearing that calling through me. Trust him today. I'm telling you, God had to open my eyes to this. I did not have eyes to see. I'm not smart enough to know who God is. He had to open my eyes to see my need for the cross. He needed to show me that I am, I, Pastor Mal Ortiz, 
is so sinful it took nothing less than the crucifixion, the death of God the Son to save me. Man. You know what happens if we all get that? It changes our hearts. It, it gives us humility. It changes the way we live and the way that we treat other people. And, and the more uh, Christians grow in that, the world becomes more a loving and gracious, beautiful place known as the advancing kingdom of God. And it advances because God through his Holy Spirit is giving life to people, giving them eyes to see, hearts to believe, to look to him, to trust him, to live for him. As more Christians live for him, it changes the world in very practical and real ways. And he wants to work in and through you, wherever you are in life. Right here, right now. You don't have to wait. I agree with G.I. Packer that the real difficulty the gospel confronts us with lies in those four words, the word became flesh. Jesus of Nazareth was fully God and at the same time fully man. Remember what Packer said, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. This is the real stumbling block in Christianity. Then Packer goes on to say, but once the incarnation is grasped as reality, all other difficulties dissolve. Meaning, if Jesus really is the eternal word, if Jesus really is the creator of all things, then of course it totally makes sense that his life would be filled with miracles. Right? You don't have to try to explain it away. If he really is the source of all life, then of course he raises from the dead. If he really is the source of unconditional love, of, of course he's going to share that life with us and then call us to share that life with others. Once we grasp that Jesus is our God in the flesh, it becomes unreasonable to reject any of that. It all fits together. It all hangs together. The incarnation is itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else in the New Testament and all of life. So, I want to end with this. How will you respond? How will you respond? Is this just another sermon we sit through? How's the Holy Spirit stirring your heart? Pray, God, show me how you want me to respond to this. Make this more real to me. Wake me up to the realities of who you, who you are. Will you receive him? Will you trust him? Will you live for him? I plead with you. I pray for you and for myself that we would trust him that we would know his truth, that together we would know his love, and that in community we would know and experience his grace, and that it would not stop there. 
that we would be so stirred up with love and loyalty for King Jesus that we will humbly share that same truth and that same love and that same grace with as many people as we possibly can. God's called us to that. Will you join me in that? Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for your word. That your word is eternal. That your word is creator. That your word is light. That your word is God. Your word is personal. It has power. God, I, I pray that, that you would give us an intense thirst for your word so that we can know you. You don't make this difficult for us. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit um, would be at work on us as individuals and collectively as a church family. God, I pray that, that we, this morning, would fix our eyes upon Jesus and not be distracted by the busyness of the Christmas season, not be distracted how someone slighted us or burned us or let us down, that we would not be distracted by, by all of the, the worries that we might have. God, I pray that your word would make sense of everything that is going on in, the, in this world around us. So often, God, we look at you through the lens of everything that's messed up in our lives. And God, I pray that we would look through the lens of your word to make sense of it all, that you would give us peace, that you would give us joy, that you would give us perseverance, and that you would stir up a loyalty, a greater, stronger loyalty to you, that we may live for you and give our lives for you. God, I pray that, that uh, you would change us in this moment as we reflect on who you are and what you've done for us by your amazing grace. We pray these things in your name.